I was shocked and surprised. Broward School Superintendent blindsided. I think you also heard a sense uh, from many in the community uh, who said that we really want to see change. A surprise smackdown by the Reform Five on the Broward School Board. Today, it was a clear no to high prices, inflation, runaway spending by our, our Congress. Re-elected and raring to go, we're live with Miami Congressman Carlos Jimenez. My fellow citizens, America's comeback starts right now. He's back, and some Democrats say welcome back to a loser. I did not feel fear that day, but I was angry. Mild-mannered Mike Pence finally speaks out. We go one-on-one. -on -one. The good, the bad, and the ugly, and the sublime, all on This Week in South Florida. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. Glenna is off today. We have a full plate of tasty political morsels for you coming up in the next hour. We'll chat with Congressman Carlos Jimenez, just re-elected. Later on, you will hear from two members of the Broward School Board, which fired the superintendent this week. But first, to Washington and the changing of the guard in the House, what it means for South Florida. Nancy Pelosi announced that she will be stepping down as the House Speaker. And with great confidence in our... Well, there she was, we thought. So the remarkable reign of Nancy Pelosi is over, and there will be a new majority leader, this time from the Republican side. And it looks like it's going to be Kevin McCarthy of California. He's been vying for the speaker's job for years. One South Florida congressman navigating through the leadership changes is Congressman Carlos Jimenez of Coral Gables, a Republican who was reelected by a whopping 21 points, a blowout victory. He represents the 26th congressional district, Southwest Miami-Dade, all the way down to Key West. Joins us now via Zoom from his home. Congressman, great to see you. Good morning. There, there you go. Carlos, can you hear me? Yes, I can. So I, I think it was closer to 28 percent, but, you know, I'll forgive you. <laughs> but who's counting? All right. Well, anyway, it was a, a, a huge victory for you. So congratulations uh, on, on the victory. Um, also, for the first time, as you're well aware, Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican, won Miami-Dade County handily. He won a solid majority in every Hispanic voting precinct. Uh, in Miami-Dade County. What does this tell you? Is Miami-Dade a purple county now or is it turning red? The last three elections have really had a swing to the right. Um, my particular district in 16 was uh, 16, 16 points for Hillary Clinton. In 20, it was four or five points for for uh, Donald Trump, and um, and then um, and then now we had a huge swing of 28 points to the right. So yeah, I think I think Miami Dade is uh, is uh, turning redder, but it's still purple. Yeah, uh, your colleague uh, Maria Elvira Salazar, uh, also reelected, said on election night, "This just proves the old adage that that uh, Hispanics are Republicans. They just don't know it." Well. In Miami-Dade County, I would say they know it, especially Cuban-Americans. 
Yeah, they do. And look, we have uh, the, the Hispanic population here in South Florida, a little bit different than uh, some of the Hisp other areas of the country. And a lot of our, our Hispanics come here fleeing from uh, oppression and communism and socialism. And so they tend to be more more to the right. And, uh, you know, and we're the beneficiaries of that. But that being said, there is a trend uh, across the nation of Hispanics shifting to the right, probably based on the same same issues uh, of everybody else. It's the economy. It's uh, prices. Um, there's also this uh, culture war that uh, that's beginning with education, et cetera. Then Hispanics, I think, are a little bit more aligned with us than they are to the Democrat Party. Right. Uh, in a minute, I want to get to the way the House of Representatives is going to be led by your party and by probably Kevin McCarthy. First, I need to ask you, as you well know, Tuesday night, Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago said he is running again. Do you support Donald Trump? Well, I think uh, you know, I'm going to take a line from our governor and says that we need to just chill out. Uh, there's a process that's uh, it's going to happen. We, uh, we're going to have some great candidates. Um, I'm sure that a lot of people are lining up. And so let's, uh, let's uh, let that go through for a while before we start jumping on one candidate or another. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it is early, and yet I know I get the email blast from uh, the former president's campaign listing members of Congress who have endorsed him. Have they already asked you for an endorsement? No, but remember, I was endorsed both by the president and by Governor DeSantis. Uh, and so, again, I think it's it's healthy to, for us to have a, a debate. Uh, it's two years away. I think we just need to chill out for a while and see how this is all going to work out. And as you know, Michael, you know, one week is an eternity in, in politics. So two years is really <laughs> a long, long time. In politics. Yeah, from here to eternity. Uh, I'll yeah. get off the, uh, the Trump questioning here in a minute. But I, I need to ask you a question that earlier this week I asked Mike Pence, and we'll play that interview later on. But given everything we know about the former president, about all the allegations, the, the impeachments, the uh, documents, classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, January 6th, should Donald Trump be the president of the United States again? Uh, Donald Trump will be the president of the United States if the American people decide that he, he should be the president of the United States again. And so a lot of the stuff that uh, is attributed to Donald Trump, I mean, the Mar-a-Lago raid, I mean, uh, I just saw Mike Pence said that that should have never happened. There are a bunch of different ways that uh, that, that could have uh, transpired without having a raid on, on the president. Uh, and so, you know, many of the things that were attributed to Donald Trump about Russian collusion, uh, and really trying to uh, cut him at the knees uh, when he became the president turned out to be a bunch of baloney, false. Four years it was uh, it was uh, put on on TV stations just like you and MSNBC, CNN, all that, uh, Washington Post, uh, the New York Times, uh, really running with a story for four years that really uh, undermined the uh, credibility and the legitimacy of, of Donald Trump's presidency. And so, you know, those questions need to be answered. And so, again, at the end of the day. The American people will decide if Donald Trump has the right to be president again or not, or some other Republican, you know, should take his place and uh, and hopefully defeat uh, President Biden because President Biden needs to be defeated in two years. Yeah. Well, do you even think President Biden will be the Democratic candidate in two years? Well, I think I think the results of this uh, this last election certainly you know certainly emboldened him. I don't think he should have taken much out of it. Look, the Republicans. Yeah outvoted the Democrats by 4 million votes. It didn't really pan out in the, in the gain of seats that we thought we were going to have. But by and large, 4 million more people thought 
in America thought that the Republican agenda was better than the Democrat agenda. Yeah. Uh, it just didn't pan out in the seats. But uh, I, I think uh, President Biden is taking the wrong message out of this. Is somehow everybody's really happy with uh, what he, the job he's doing in America. We're not. Uh, and I believe that if he continues on these policies, that uh, America will suffer more. And yeah, I do believe that he's going to run in, uh, in two years. Yeah. Uh, Congressman, uh, as you well know, the leadership in the House of Representatives changing first time and really in years, 20 years. Nancy Pelosi has been the House Speaker. She's stepping aside, letting Hakeem Jeffries, it appears, is going to step forward. And for the Republicans, for your party, uh, the leader is probably going to be Representative Kevin McCarthy of California. Uh, do you believe he will be? Yes, I do. I think that, uh, you know, in the end, uh, we've had some healthy, healthy debate inside the conference, but uh, the overwhelming majority of the conference supports Kevin McCarthy. And the great thing about, you know, uh, choosing the speaker is that you stand up in the well and you speak out and you say a name. Uh, so everybody knows exactly how you voted. And so at the end of the day, yeah, I think Kevin McCarthy not only will be the speaker, but deserves to be the speaker. Uh, he has uh, led the Republican Party, you know, to the majority, you know, uh, four years ago. We were in 2008, you know, 2018, uh, you know, we got walloped pretty hard. And in two cycles, he's led us back. And I think that he deserves to be the majority. I've worked under him. I, I think he's led us, you know, uh, the right way. Uh, yeah, we may be sometimes a little bit difficult because we're a little bit more independent thinking. We're not we're not dogs. We're kind of like cats. But at the end, I think he's, he has the ability to herd that, uh, yeah. those cats. Yeah, it, it will be, obviously, a very thin majority instead mm -hmm. of what was predicted to be 15, 20, 25 uh, seat majority by the Republicans in the House. It's going to be, what, seven or eight seats, rather? And that makes his job and your role a lot tougher. Yeah, it does. But again, you know, I think uh, one of the things that we're going to do is how did Nancy Pelosi do it? Because she had the same kind of small majority. Yeah, that's too. right. She was able to do it. And so we've got to take a you know a page from her book and say, OK, exactly. How did you do that? Yeah. And uh, and and really, you know, push through her agenda with such a slim majority. you got to take your hat off to her. Yeah. I mean, I don't agree with her policies and I saw her politics. But, yeah. you know, how she got her agenda through the House, you have to take your hat off to her. And, uh, you know, she was very effective. Yes. for the Democrat Party. She, she uh, was indeed. So I think we need, to, we need to learn from how she did some yeah. things and, uh, and then move on from there. All right. Well, I want to talk about your agenda and the, the agenda coming up here. You know, for the next couple of years, things like immigration, very important to you. So hold on here, Congressman. We'll be back with Congressman Carlos Jimenez in just a minute. Okay. Welcome back on this Sunday morning. We are speaking with Congressman Carlos Jimenez. Very sorry, Congressman. Usually you get up early on Sundays, go out to the Veltmore, play a round of golf. I don't think you did that this morning. No, not today, not today Michael. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I don't, I don't, I don't play, uh, you know, underwater golf. Uh, we, we, we understand. All right, seriously, Congressman, uh, an issue for you, for the country, uh, is immigration. Other members of Congress, Senator Marco Rubio in 2013, tried hard to get an immigration reform bill. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart a couple of years ago put it on the line trying to get it. Nobody's been able to do it. Will you and your colleagues 
this time be able to go back and try to fix this terrible situation that we've got with immigration? Well, the problem, Michael, is that unless we get and secure our border, the, 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 the conversation stops there. And so the first thing we have to do is secure our border. And right now, we don't have a secure border. And unfortunately, because of the policies of the Biden administration, I don't believe we're going to have a secure border. Until, until if and when we get a secure border, uh, the, then we can start talking about comprehensive immigration reform, which I think this country absolutely needs. But the Biden administration has to be serious about securing our border, and they're not serious about securing our border. Yeah, we can work on, on legislation, but again, it won't be partisan. I mean, it won't be bipartisan in nature until we get the border secured. Again, I don't know how many times I have to say it. We have to get that border secured, and then we can move on to see how we can fix the immigration problem here in the United States. Yeah, well, does uh, uh, Secretary Alexander Mayorkas need to go? Is he part of the problem here? I think the, pro the big problem is the Biden administration. It's, it is President Biden and his policies. I don't believe that Secretary Mayorkas is just doing whatever Secretary Mayorkas yeah. wants to do. I mean, and if President Biden weren't happy with what's happening at the border and what Secretary Mayorkas was doing, I think Secretary Mayorkas would be gone by now, but he's not. So he's actually, you know, uh, following through on what the Biden administration, want, what President Biden wants, wants to happen. Uh, and so, yeah, are they securing our border? No. Are they putting Americans at risk? Yes. Do we have, uh, you know, tons and tons of fentanyl that's killing thousands of Americans, you know, every single month, hundreds every single day flowing yeah. through the su southern border? Yes. What are they doing about it? Nothing or very little. Well, they would say they are doing the best they can, but the best uh, they can is not obviously no, no, uh, no. good no, enough. No, no. Uh, no, 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 Michael, Michael, they, they're not doing the best they can. They're doing it on purpose. All right. And so they're nobody's going to uh, ever, ever tell me they're not doing it on purpose because you can't be this dumb. I mean, we had policies in place that were really had stemmed, you know, and really slowed down the, the flow of illegal immigration into the United States. The first day that he got into office, he overturned all of those policies. And now you're seeing the results. Hey, just go back to those policies that were working. Why don't you do that? You know, no, no, because they want this to happen. They want to have millions of people coming through the southern border. I think they're placating their far left agenda of open borders here in the United States. And it, I'm telling you, it is putting us in danger. Both, but we don't even know who's going through. By the way, there's over a billion people we didn't, we didn't even apprehend. We don't even know yeah. who they are. You know, we had a close to 80 people on the terrorist watch list that actually wanted to come through and be apprehended. Can you imagine how many more uh, did not want to be apprehended and got through? So, look, no, no, you can't tell me that it's not done on purpose. It's on purpose. They know exactly what they have to do. All right. Well, if we had a Democratic representative, say Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, your colleague and friend and Democrat, she would mm -hmm. say you're wrong. So, you know, but we acknowledge and respect your point of view. And, Congressman, it's always good but to I have would you. Say she, uh, I would say she's wrong. Okay, so fine. Okay. That's, that's, that's what America's about. That's the beauty of America. Well, it, it is indeed. And... Good luck being in the majority now in the House. Thank you very Thank much, Thank you, Michael. Carlos. Appreciate it. All right, up next, turmoil in the Broward County School Board. We're going to talk about it with two members about the firing of the superintendent. The Broward School Board is in a state of turmoil and has been for several months. It started with a grand jury report that accused 
five board members of neglect of duty and incompetence. The governor then suspended them and appointed altogether five new members to the school board. And on Monday night, without advance notice, they voted to fire Superintendent Vicki Cartwright. But did that firing violate the state sunshine law? And what's going to happen after four new elected school board members are sworn in on Tuesday? We want to talk about all that today with two school board members, one pro-Cartwright, one anti-Cartwright. So let's begin with the pro-side school board member, Sarah Leonardi. I spoke with her on Friday. Uh, Sarah, at this moment, uh, Dr. Vicki Cartwright is no longer the superintendent of schools of Broward County, fired on Monday night on a five to four vote. Was that fair? Uh, was that justice? Was that the right thing to do? Right. Um, so she is currently still our superintendent as we have not appointed an interim um, or acting. Uh, but I do not believe that that process was fair. I don't believe what happened to her was fair for a variety of reasons. Right. Well, the the five votes to fire her were by board members who had the authority to do it, uh, but they were appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis. I do not know their political affiliations. I believe most of them are Republicans. And they. the most important thing is they are not elected by the voters of Broward County. So does that sort of delegitimize what they did? Right. For me, it's not about them. Um, it's about how it all played out. You know, the vote, I think, took place close to 10 o'clock at night. Uh, there was no item on the agenda to terminate the superintendent. So a lot of the public was caught off guard. Um, you know, we had given her 90 days, I think 20 days prior to that meeting to do enact an improvement plan. Um, and then we, we went back on our word. So for me, it's not who voted her to be fired, it's about the process. Right, well, let's talk first about Sunshine Law, possible Sunshine Law violations. Sunshine Law obviously says that the business of government has to be conducted in public, and one of the things it requires is public notice of important business before the public. What could be more important than the, the tenure, the status of the school superintendent, but it was not on that Monday night agenda, was it? No, it was not. Um, and I know that, you know, the next morning and even that evening, I had people calling me and texting me asking, you know, what happened? Um, they were shocked, I was shocked. Yeah, and the school board attorney seemed to be kind of ambivalent about whether it was legal or not, what happened? Uh, where did she finally come down? You know, it's her position to protect the school board of Broward County. Um, so I don't know that she would ever come out and say that we committed a sunshine violation. I do know I read um, in the Miami Herald that Barbara Peterson, who's the director of the Florida Center for Government Accountability and who specializes in this, said it was likely a sunshine law violation and that if she were the board attorney, she would have recommended that we not um, go through with that vote. So I think there's a lot of conflicting opinions. And I know uh, Ms. Batista, our attorney, did have, uh, you know, some, in your words, ambivalent views on this. Um, and she does, she did say that the Sunshine Law is very vague. Um, but I, I think when you come down to logistics and common sense, 
Um, people did not see this on the agenda. They were not prepared for this. Um, I would say the public did not have an opportunity, a, a reasonable opportunity to come and comment on this and provide their input. Um, so, you know, it's really out of the spirit of the sunshine, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, um, you just mentioned that in fact only about 20 days ago, the school board had agreed to give Vicki Cartwright 90 days to improve in 15, I guess, areas where there are concerns about competence or how the work is being handled. Um, why do you think that there, suddenly there was this rush to get rid of her even though she had been given this period of time? I have no idea. Um, I don't know what was in the, the hearts and minds of the people who voted to fire her and the people who brought that motion forward. Um, but I think it really sends a chilling message to all of our employees about how they can rely on us for due process and things like that. And that is not the message that I want to send um, to our employees and to the public. Yeah. Uh, you cannot see it, Sarah, but we are putting up on the screen the list of the votes uh, on firing Dr. Cartwright and voting yes, where Chairman Tory Alston, Kevin Tynan, Ryan Ryder, Daniel Fulgenholy, uh, and Manuel Serrano, and those voting no included you, Lori Aldedef, Deborah Hickson, and Nora Rupert. Now, on Tuesday night, uh, Nora and Lori uh, are going to be reinstated, sworn in for another term, but there are going to be four new members of the school board. Now that changes the dynamic. How is it going to change? It's really hard for me to say, you know, it, I haven't um, spent time on the dais with these folks. Uh, so it's hard for me to, to know, you know, what's in their minds, um, how they might vote on certain things. So that will kind of come out as public discussion um, continues with, with the board on the dais. So I look forward to working with my new colleagues and seeing where they are on these issues. Right. Uh, is it possible that uh, the newly reconstituted school board could say we want to reinstate Vicki Cartwright as the superintendent? It is most certainly possible, yes. Yeah. Uh, she is still on the payroll, I guess her contract called for that so she it's not as if she's gone anywhere uh, she is there is she I mean the Broward County Public Schools is a huge uh, corporate uh, governmental enterprise uh, is she still as it were the leader of the Broward County Public Schools Yes, she is. You know, her contract allows for a 60 day notice um, for a termination without cause, which is what happened the other night. Um, I've seen her out and about in the district. She's carrying herself with extreme grace and poise and still carrying out the jobs and duties of the superintendent. Um, I believe even this afternoon, she's going to be on a workshop for the Florida Department of Education. Um, so you've got to hand it to her. You know, she's been through the ringer and yeah. um, she's still doing her job like she should. Yeah. And she has shown, in my view, a lot of dignity and has not risen to any kind of uh, attack tactics. I mean, she has laid back, so uh, good on her. Uh, mm -hmm. Sarah Leonardi, great to speak with you. Upcoming, we're going to talk to your colleague, Kevin Tynan. We'll get another view of what happened. But for now, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Okay. Stay with us. We'll be right
When the Broward School Board met Monday night this week, the future of Superintendent Vicki Cartwright was not on their agenda. It was, however, on the agenda of Daniel Fogan-Holy. It was his last day on the Broward School Board, and it was he who made the motion to fire Cartwright with minimal discussion, no public input. The board, board voted five to four to fire her, and one of the five members voting to fire her was Kevin Tynan. It was his that was the deciding fifth vote. Kevin Tynan is a longtime uh, attorney in Broward County and has served here on the uh, Broward School Board since August, and his term ends Tuesday. Kevin Tynan, welcome. Glad to see you again. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Uh, this is almost the before and after. You got me coming in. Now you have me leaving. <laughs> we we do. We've got you coming and going, uh, and, and glad to do so, Kevin. Uh, the the Sun Sentinel reporter who is really on this story, Scott mm -hmm. Travis, reported that it took you 54 seconds to decide how you were going to cast your vote on Monday night. Uh, what took so long and what was going through your mind? It, it was a difficult decision. Um, you know, I had spoke earlier that, that uh, when the last time this issue had come up and it had come up twice previously pretty much, uh, you know, we, we had given the superintendent 90 days. You know, I thought that's where I was going to end up on uh, my discussion of the event, where my ultimate vote would be. And then I listened to two of my colleagues who yeah. ended up swaying me. Right. Well, as you say, on October 26th, you and every member of the school board pulled back and said, superintendent, we're going to give you 90 days to improve in these particular areas, and then we'll sort of assess where you are. Uh, what hurried that up? Why, why did you know you and your other four other board members simply say, no, time's up? Well, it, and again, I didn't expect to be talking about that uh, the other night. Uh, certainly, uh, Mr. Fogenholy made a presentation. Mm -hmm. He put forward a motion. The chairman seconded it. Nobody else spoke up um, at that point in time. There was some discussion about it, although quite frankly, we had a, a tremendous amount of public input on the two previous times. Yeah. And what made it for me in the end, and yeah, I took a long time. I didn't want to shoot from the hip and say yes or no. I wanted to think about it for a moment. And in the end, my analysis was, you know, we knew that certain people needed to be terminated or at least gotten out of jobs. And the audits that came out that evening clearly pointed for why one of those people should have been fired because he didn't even share or provide uh, documents to the auditor. Right. Was that the, the audit on the company that provides the graduation caps and gowns, which that is correct, had a sweetheart deal with the Broward County School Board, kind of suspect and... Uh, I don't know if it was a sweetheart deal as much as, uh, you know, what they were doing around the corners and cheating, cheating the parents. Yeah. Well, it certainly looked that way. Uh, you know, Mr. Tynan, I, I, I certainly concede that you and I suspect the other four members appointed by the governor want the Broward County Public Schools to function well and competently and to manage their money 
like the $800 million bond issue for school yeah. reconstruction to handle all that well. And it's pretty clear there have been serious problems. On the other hand, the message of firing the superintendent sends says, boy, this, this is a hot mess. The Broward County School Board is just kind of a hot mess right now. Um, and, and unfortunately, it's been a hot mess for a long time. It's not just this superintendent, it's others, but it's not necessarily the superintendent, it's the people underneath right. uh, that are entrenched. And, you know, to, to use a euphemism from my colleague, Mr. Serrano, you know, sometimes the coach pays. Yeah. Um, you know, it's unfortunate. And, and again, I, I respect the superintendent and I heard uh, my colleague, Ms. Leonardi, uh, she has handled this uh, uh, calmly and, and professionally. And, uh, you know, I was one of the people that firmed up that by contract, she has 60 days. You know, we need to honor that. Yeah. Um, there are going to be four new, newly elected school board members, members sworn in on Tuesday. Quite possible they could vote to reinstate Vicki Cartwright. Is that, uh, you see that on the horizon? Well, certainly, like in a lot of issues, you can start a new motion in front of the panel, notice it, do it. Uh, I don't know if, if the newcomers are any different than us on how they view the school board. Yeah, well, they... And the change and, that needs to be made. Right, and excuse me, and you're absolutely right. I think only one of the four has indicated any feelings uh, towards Dr. Cartwright, so we will have to find out after they meet and um, and then direct w whether to have a national search for a superintendent or reappoint her. Kevin Tynan, mm -hmm. great to speak with you and thank you for your service. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right, up next, we're going to speak with Miami City Commissioner Ken Russell and about his threat to resign early. What was that all about? The City of Miami City Commission consists of just five members, each with his or her own little fiefdom to rule over, and infighting among the commissioners is always constant. Infighting reached a pitched level this week when Commissioner Ken Russell, who is leaving office in January, tried to make sure that some big items that he's interested in, they are on, that they get before the commission next month while he can still vote on them. But he was met with fierce resistance by Commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla, who is mercurial and tough, and also opposition from Joe Carroyo, who is a legendary troublemaker there. So Commissioner Russell stalked off, threatened to resign early. Commissioner Russell joins us now from his home in Coconut Grove. Uh, Ken, hello. Welcome. Good to see you. Good morning, Michael. How are you? Well, I'm very well. I didn't have to put up with Alex Diaz de la Portilla or, or Joe Carroyo, uh, who are tough customers. I, you know, I have respect for them, but, you know, they are mockers, as uh, the term goes. Uh, so did you, when you left the dais the, of the commission the other day, was that it, or have you sort of worked out a settlement? I took out a I took a deep breath after that commission. It, it was bothersome and upsetting, and, and of course you can't take anything personal that happens in politics and on the dais. You just got to try to get your work done, and that's my real goal: is to finish off my term 
putting a putting a cap on the things that 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 I really care about that are important for our community, especially West Grove, Little Bahamas, and Coconut Grove. So, I've reached out to the clerk and asked to try to get a quorum to get that December eighth meeting back on the agenda. And I've heard at least one commissioner will do it with me so far, and we need one more. So I'm hoping that Chairwoman Christine King joins so that we just simply do our job as commissioners and show up for work in December. All right. So if Commissioner Manolo Reyes is willing to go along and chair Christine King, uh, that's not enough to get the meeting back on, is it? It is. With only five commissioners, a quorum yeah. is three. And so if three people show up, three people can vote, three people can get the work done. This is literally unprecedented that when one commissioner wants to go on vacation, and literally that was the reason yeah. given, I, I want to I spend time with family, that the rest of the business of the city completely halts. And for commissioners that get paid over $100,000 a year, for us to take a break from mid-November to mid-January is disrespectful to the residents, and it's, it's dishonorable to the job that we're, we're there to do. We just got to show up on December 8th and cast our votes. It's really not that hard. Yeah. Uh, Ken, I, I read that there is at stake what you want to see resolved is $300,000 in anti-poverty funds. Explain how that is at stake and what, what you want to happen. Sure. We have an initiative called API where each commissioner works on things in their district specifically. And if, if those those initiatives qualify for the grants, um, you know, it needs a vote of the full commission. But commissioners have never gotten in the way of other commissioners and how they spend those API funds. Yeah. Uh, if I'm not there to vote on it and I'm gone in January anyway, they really realize that they created they instead of they really robbed me of my last meeting. If we if we want to be very clear about it. So this is just some silly petty bullying. Um, but it has a big effect on the community. And it's not just those API grants. We have a lot of rezoning issues. If you drive down Grand Avenue, you see the blight on, yeah. that, on, that, on that street. I've come with a zoning overlay that can actually incentivize affordable housing. And it's taken me months to put together with the community and all the stakeholders, um, including Congresswoman Frederica Wilson, whose Bahamian Museum is involved in that rezoning along with affordable housing. So all of that goes in the garbage, uh, but for that December meeting. Yeah. Uh, Ken, I have to say, I have been going to meetings of, of the Miami City Commission for more than three decades. I've seen some fairly outrageous things happen down there. I mean, it is good theater and bad government a lot of the time. Uh, and this is not a personal attack at all. But I have to say, uh, Commissioner uh, Diaz de la Portilla, Commissioner Corroyo, they are kind of classic tough guys, antagonists. Uh, they like to yank your chain because you are a honest, decent, uh, straightforward guy. And they need somebody to be their straight man. They make you their straight man a lot of the time, don't they? I'm happy to play that part as long as I get the work done. And it's never been pretty on the City of Miami Commission, but we have gotten the work done. And I'm really proud of it. Over my last seven years, um, items I've sponsored, I've gotten passed. I've found the votes for every single time. And it's government oversight, police oversight, affordable housing, the environment, climate change. I've written and passed some of the most aggressive legislation in the entire state of Florida on all of these subjects and gotten them passed. So if I have to go along with the theater yeah. and play, you know, the straight man to the, you know, to the comedy <laughs> that goes on up there, I'm okay yeah. with that yeah. as well, long as the work gets you're, done. You're, you're um, a and, bigger and unfortunately man. in this case, yeah. You're a bigger man than I would be in that same situation. I want to compliment you. I remember when you began your political career in Miami uh, by getting toxic dirt 
out of Merry Christmas Park uh, in the South Grove. I used to live on Barbarossa Avenue uh, in South Coral Gables, right across the street. Used to love to go over there and play Frisbee. And I had no idea that the ground was toxic, but you found that out and you fixed it. So uh, good for you. Thank you. I, I live on Barbarossa Avenue and, and with my kids and family. And when I realized that park was contaminated, I literally said, who is my commissioner? What is a commissioner and how do we get this fixed? Yeah. I, I organized my neighborhood. I learned everything I could about the science and we got it done. And when yeah. I found out there were five other contaminated parks, I decided to run for office. What, what this has taught me and should teach everybody is that anybody, even a surfboard salesman like myself, can get off their couch and make a difference in their community. Yeah. And the toll you pay for that with your privacy or, or the public you know, uh, uh, scrutiny you get is all worth it for the type of change you can implement in your community. So regardless of the tough politics, I recommend anyone who believes they, can, they would want to change their community, you are ready for it, you are qualified for it, and you should get up and do it. I like that message a lot, and uh, I hope you get the December meeting and get your issues resolved before you leave the commission in January. Ken Russell, thanks a million. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Take care, Mark. Okay. We'll be right back with former Vice President Mike Pence. Former Vice President Mike Pence published an autobiography this week. It is called so help me God, he is a fervent Christian, and he was a loyal vice president to Donald Trump. Mike Pence is a placid man, slow to anger, but he told me this week that he is angry that Donald Trump put him and his family at risk on January 6th. I spoke with him on Tuesday, so some of the time references here are dated, but the substance of the interview is worth hearing. Mr. Vice President, the chants that we all heard from the Capitol on January the 6th, hang Mike Pence, we saw the gallows outside. Frankly, it gave me shivers. It was frightening. Were you frightened? Well, Michael, I can tell you that uh, by God's grace, uh, uh, I did not feel fear that day, but I was angry. I was angry at what I saw, uh, rioters ransacking the Capitol, vandalizing, assaulting police officers. And uh, as I write in my book, So Help Me God, I, I was filled with indignation, not, not this, not here, not in America. And um, I was determined in that moment um, uh, to set aside uh, my feelings, even my anger, and work the problem. And, um, and we did that. And thanks to the courage of law enforcement, the unity shown by Republican and Democrat leaders in the Congress. We, yeah. we were able to quell the violence, uh, reconvene the Congress, and a day of tragedy became uh, a triumph uh, of freedom. And right. uh, uh, I, uh, I'll always believe that we did our duty under the Constitution that day. We kept our oath, as the Bible says, even when it hurts, yeah. and uh, uh, ensured the yeah. peaceful transfer of power. And, and it was transferred, even though Mr. Trump continues to this day and May tonight when he announces uh, that he's running in again, contend that the election in 2020 was stolen from him. Was it stolen? Uh, no, the election of 2020 was not stolen. Uh, we have a system in this country where states like Florida conduct elections. 
If there are questions, they're reviewed by the courts. Uh, then the states certify those elections, and the role of the Congress is to open and count those electoral votes. All of that happened uh, through difficult times, through irregularities that did take place in a number of states around the country, allegations of fraud, evidence of which never really came to the fore. Uh, I thought it was important that we have that debate in the Congress on January 6th, uh, that we hear the concerns of members, we hear the objections, but at the end of the day, that we complete our work and we ensure the peaceful transfer of power. And by God's grace, that's just what we did. Yeah. Mr. Pence, you are telling your story now, nearly two years later in your book, so help me God. Uh, why, did, why did it take two years for you to tell the story since we now know from your book and from the interview you did with David Muir last night that you were really angry and that this was, you know, a traumatic situation for you and for the nation? Well, Michael, I would, I would tell you that uh, writing a book is a large project. And so Help Me God is really the story of my whole life and my journey, my uh, coming to faith in Christ, being raised by a combat veteran and a first-generation Irish-American. It's a story of my family, my incredible wife, Karen, and our kids, our service in Congress and as governor. And I think it is the most fulsome record of the Trump-Pence administration that's been written, showing how we made this country more strong and prosperous. And I, I wanted to get all that on paper. But when it comes to January 6, uh, Michael, I would say respectfully that uh, I, I spoke about January 6 first on January 6, uh, both in my letter to Congress and when I addressed the Senate when we reconvened. I spoke about it after 100 days of the Biden administration. Uh, when I traveled out on the road, I spoke at the Reagan Library when I said that but there, there was no things. idea more un-American yeah. than the idea that one person could choose the president. And, you know, Michael, we've spoken about it throughout, but I thought telling the whole story, how and why we did what we did and who we are was important. It was a privilege to do it, and yeah. so help me God. All right. One final question, if I may. Uh, tonight, we expect Donald Trump to say he is running again for president. Should he be president? I think that'll be a decision for the American people. And, um, you know, my family and I, after uh, we get uh, uh, this book tour done, we're, we're going to sit down over the Christmas holidays and give prayerful consideration to what our role might be and whether or not we might be in that field. But I, I, I trust the American people, Republican primary voters, will, will sort that out. I think we'll have many choices in the days ahead. And uh, uh, we just might be a part of it, Michael. Well, the American voters always do make the decision, usually the right one. But what about you personally? I mean, do you believe, given everything that you've experienced with Donald Trump, that he should be the president of the United States again? Well, I think no one could have defeated Hillary Clinton in 2016 other than Donald Trump. Um, but for 2024, I think we'll have better choices. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we'll have candidates Pence? better fitted to the times. Um, well, I promise to keep you posted, Michael. <laughs> I really do. All right. Well, we hope to see you next time that you're in Florida. Thank you very much, Mike Pence. Uh, thank you, Michael. Sounds like he's running. To rewatch today's interviews or listen to This Week in South Florida, the podcast, scan this QR code with your phone. It will take you right to the This Week in South Florida section of local10.com. We thank you for being here with us. We are online 24 seven. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved, have a happy Thanksgiving.